If you feel like municipal governments could really benefit from breaking the mold every once in a while and making room for a bit of innovation, you're not alone. Since launching the SF Next project, aimed specifically at coming up with new solutions to intractable problems, project director Jonathan Krim has been wondering how to spark creativity. So he interviewed a former city government worker who now heads up a local arts powerhouse. I would just say I'm a big advocate for the willingness to experiment and listen to people about what they need. I'm Laura Wenis. This week, Sarah Fenske-Bahat shares the story behind a famous New York City landmark and how across her multifaceted career, she's encouraged the generation of new ideas. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. As part of our work to unpack some of San Francisco's thorniest problems, the Chronicle organized the SF Next Solutions Conference in October. Some 170 people got together to talk about what it might take to address homelessness, crime, and housing affordability. Breakout groups headed off with facilitators to drill down on specific questions, while everyone else attended panel discussions and interviews with thought leaders. SF Next Project Director Jonathan Krim sat down with Sarah Fenske-Bahat to talk about how governments can think outside the box. So I want to turn to our next topic. I've been on this project for 11 months now, 12 months almost. And the one thing that just keeps nagging at me over and over and over again is we live in a city that is nominally the cradle of innovation in this country and maybe in the world. Uh, And we have these intractable problems that have been going on for 20, 30 years. And I keep looking for the places where there's actual new thinking and creativity brought to bear on some of these challenges. And it just constantly seems like it's groups of people having different versions of the same conversation. And there's nothing institutional uh, that drives creativity here. And it's a, it's a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. And so I'll be doing this interview today um, with Sarah Fenske-Bahat, who is currently the interim CEO of the Yerba Buena Cultural Center, Center for the Arts, um, which may sound odd in this context, but she actually has one of the most interesting resumes I've ever seen. And she's been in banking, she's been in community and economic development uh, around the country. And one of those was uh, up close in New York City during the Michael Bloomberg administration as mayor, uh, working on economic development issues. Um, And it gave her a front row seat into a different way of thinking about local government and how to make innovation happen in public policymaking. So Sarah, please join us. So uh, tell us a little bit about your experience um, in uh, New York during the Bloomberg administration and working on economic development projects. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the High Line in New York, which is this really incredible um, sort of pedestrian walkway, just wonderful social thing. Um, And you had uh, some involvement in that. But, But talk about it in the context of you know, a new idea that came up and, and how that was processed in a place like New York. Sure. Um, 
Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, so I joined New York City government straight out of grad school um, in uh, 1999. And I was working in government for a couple of years before 9-11. So I bridged the Giuliani administrations um, and the Bloomberg administrations. Uh, so I think there's a useful exercise, thought exercise of that flip um, politically, but also the way that New York changed before and after 9-11. Um, I, I have a history of running into difficult situations, I guess is the way that you could put that, or challenging moments. Um, and I would say, you know, I separate my New York City government time to the before and after times of both of those things, uh, which were roughly the same time. Like there was a four month difference. Um, so in the before times, uh, New York City government was run in a very top down way. Um, and I was working on a project that was not the High Line. Um, that administration would not look at the High Line. Um, the folks who were started the High Line successfully eventually came to the, that administration, tried to get us to pay attention, and wanted nothing to do with it. Um, my role there was to negotiate deals to retain employees in the city, um, which New York does. It's interesting in the context of the housing conversation, um, which New York City does by way of building new buildings. So they big, build new buildings. Um, they work with large employers to put people in those buildings. And they offer a tax incentive for them to do so. Um, the thinking about the level of the tax incentive is related to the amount of economic activity that comes along with having a bunch of people working in a location. right? So often they would cluster buildings. Um, you saw the renovation of Times Square done this way. You saw the renovation of Lower Manhattan done this way. You saw the renovation of Long Island City, downtown Brooklyn. It's like a strategy that New York has been employing since the early 90s. Uh, Mike Bloomberg came in and changed the way city government worked pretty fundamentally. Um, instead of running this top-down structure, he really leaned into a deputy mayor format and embraced each deputy mayor. So I worked for the deputy mayor of economic development and rebuilding um, to have a strategy and a vision for that effort. Um, and so what used to be a lineup of projects became a much more strategic approach. Um, six months in or so, that, that, so that changeover was really interesting. There's lots of good stories in there. Um, but I would say there was a lot that was disassembled and reassembled, and the High Line was one of those projects. So, so let me ask you, um, you have all these, or a series of deputies, right, who own these different areas. Yep. What, how did, um, did, was there anyone who was sort of sitting there saying, okay, this deputy's doing this, this deputy's doing this, this deputy's doing this. How does that fit into our overall strategic vision for the That's city? That's what they did at Monday morning staff meetings. Um, each of the deputy mayors and the mayor were coming together to think through. So the deputy mayors were something like, you could probably go look it up, but it's something like economic development, public health, um, public safety, so the police, fire, education. I'm sh uh, and then there was an operations person, right, who oversaw city facilities, uh, data architecture. Um, New York has a very well-developed 311 system. Um, that drives all the mayor's reporting data. He's obviously a data-driven guy, right? Like, that's the whole thing with him. Um, and so the mayor for economic development, who's, or deputy mayor for economic development, who is my boss, oversaw housing, parks, 
arts and culture, economic development, um, and a bunch of smaller things that were projects, right? Governor's Island, Roosevelt Island. Um, and his purview was to take a look at the city and try to understand how to make it better from the perspective of the people who lived and worked there, using the tools at his disposal. Um, and so, you know, in our time, developed a number of strategies, both citywide and for specific areas of the city, using the collaboration of those agencies working together. So I don't know if you were in the room when this happened, but when they started to look at the Highline idea, yeah. right, what would the answer be to the question, um, how does this make New York City, how does this fit into the vision of New York City being better? Sure. Um, there's a strategy in the Bloomberg administration and in other cities too um, that became popular probably 15 years ago or so, which is the idea of the 20-minute city. Many of you have probably heard about it. Um, roughly, it's this notion that um, cities should be designed so that every resident can live within a 20-minute sustainable commute of a job that pays them enough to live there. Okay. So it, you hit transit, you hit housing, you hit employment, you hit education roughly, you hit parks, right? You're hitting a lot of dimensions. His office was organized along those lines. And the High Line, um, for those of you who don't know, the High Line is a elevated walkway built on the far west side of Manhattan in an area not served by transit very well. And what it allows you to do is like walk without traffic, um, I think from roughly 12th Street up to 45th Street, something like that now. Um, it was initially planned to be like a 10 block area. Um, and so the proposal we got initially was we want to do this 10 block thing. It might become longer. And the Julian administration is like, yeah, no. The Bloomberg administration looked at it differently because they made the argument that it would connect people between communities like transit does, which it does, um, and that it would... Um, sort of revitalize an area of town that until that time had, didn't have Google, didn't have hotels, maybe had a few, there was actually really cool bars and art galleries over there back then. There was a place with a light up floor that I really liked. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there wasn't a whole lot going on other than there were a bunch of buildings being used as galleries. Um, there were some other illicit activities going on, but we can leave those for another day. So they made the economic development argument, um, and they said it would be good for the city and the people that live there. So the city of New York has this sort of, or had at least, this sort of 20-minute uh, city overarching vision that, that sort of guided a lot of these decisions, right? Yeah. Have you seen anything comparable here in San Francisco? I would like to. Um, <laughs> I would like to. The tunnel tubs are similar, but they are more of a destination than a transit. I like them. Don't get me wrong. Um, the tunnel tops. Sorry, I should repeat it. Uh, JFK is a pretty good example. Um, I think JFK is a great example, actually. Um, but I think your question is about the planning aspect. It is, yeah. Um, and the vision aspect, right? Yeah. So it's like... So I participated in the Eastern Neighborhoods Commission um, several years ago, which I thought was an exciting project. It's the area between Division down to Cesar Chavez, roughly east of um, Brannon, roughly. 
Um, and, you know, for those of you who don't know, the area, the neighborhood area plans are interesting in that they take development fees um, from people building new buildings and work with the city to program that capital on uh, projects that are beneficial to the community in a couple categories. Um, I've seen some positive things there, but I have not seen citywide planning um, at the scale that and with the degree of seriousness across agencies that New York took it. Um, to my understanding, unless something new has happened, we're operating off a 1995 citywide plan. Um, and it's mostly for development. I don't think it's integrated with transit and parks, et cetera. Um, the way that I think there's a really important thing reflecting on the last conversation to note here, which is that that plan in New York, I don't know what their most recent update is, but that plan serves as a blueprint for as of right zoning, which means it's a technical thing, but it's a technical term for you have the right to build a certain amount of property. Um, whether in terms, mostly in terms of FAR by neighborhood, so floor area ratio, um, you have the ability to do that just by way of your location with no special approval necessary, meaning there's no process for approval of individual projects within that initial envelope. To me, that's the first thing um, that could happen here that I think might, a new plan with the ability to um, green light as of right zoning, I think would be an enormous win for San Francisco. So that, so that begins, so what that looks like is it begins with zoning decisions for a particular area and then anything that fits within those guidelines. Yeah. So knowing San Francisco as we all do, wouldn't that then make the big fight over the zoning decision in the first place, right? I'm sure. Yeah. But, you know, we have a 1995 plan. It, and, you know, in my mind, um, like, I'm very pro-democracy. Hope everybody in the room is. Like, put, put it on the ballot. Like, if we need to put a new plan and a plan every five years, ten years on the ballot in order to make sure that we're growing this city to accommodate the needs and wishes of the people who live here, I'm for it. I don't have time to organize it, but I'm for it. <laughs> well, I think we—I think these people would want you to do that, though. <laughs> no, no. Um, so, let's talk a little bit about government structure, sure. which is another area where we run things very differently than than New York does. What are sort of the—and you're familiar with both. What are sort of the key differences that you see, positive or negative? Sure. I mean, uh, I would say. There's, I think, um, Board of Supervisors is much more powerful here than it is in New York City. Um, there's a big court case about it. Look up the Board of Estimates. It's a whole thing. Um, community boards are very strong in New York in a similar way to the way that community input on projects is really important here. So I do think there's a bit of a balancing effect there. Um, if you look up and compare the citywide org charts in these two cities... When I did this, I, it told me everything I needed to know. Um, I like many city officials. Like I just held the mayor's staff meeting at YBCA a few weeks ago. Um, but she oversees um, the city administrator who oversees like 40 agency heads. And we have many agencies that report to boards, not to the city administrator or the mayor. Um, 
I also, in another life, ran an MBA program. Just as a manager of people, I want you to think about what it would be to manage 44 people, right? I manage like eight or nine people, right? And they in turn manage people. But eight or nine is a lot of people to manage like sort of the visioning and strategizing and logistics of their work in organizational life. And so to me, um, you know, I think we have to be willing to experiment with trying to do things differently just to get back to creativity. Um, I also think that the city's office of innovation is actually great. Um, I've had students work with them. I think they take on really meaty projects. I don't know um, that they're as effective as they might be if the structure was changed, but I do think that there are really good people working in city government. How, how should the structure change? I don't know. I mean, it's a separate agency. Like, I think an office of innovation working at the level of the mayor, if you had deputy mayors, would be amazing. Yeah. Because uh, you could deploy them on really strategic efforts. I had a bunch of grad students working on a project a couple years ago to streamline the permitting system for small businesses. Um, and, you know, we can work on that and iterate on that all day long. Great. I have no idea if it ever happened. Right. And so connecting it to the operations, um, you know, would see a through line. Um, so interesting new ideas come from different places. Oh, yeah. Uh, sometimes they come from external sources and they get brought to government. Sounds like that's what happened with the High Line, right? That was a. Yep. That was an independently idea, run effort. Right? Yep. But there are a lot of talented, uh, smart people who work within a city government. And it isn't clear to me that, at least in San Francisco, that there's any sort of formalized process for enabling those people to bring really good ideas to the table, whether it's in their area or some other area. And, you know, there are uh, government institutions where there are programs like that and they're incentive programs so that you, you have a reason to try to do that. Did you see that in New York at all? And, and what do you see here? Um, here I see, I participate in an effort called Advance SF, which is looking at, um, how to revitalize downtown now. Um, and there, there are a number of folks who run institutions downtown or are from city agencies really interested in that, um, sitting around a table in a couple working groups, thinking about things and trying to make things happen. Um, in terms of young people working in government, I only know the people I've met and worked with. I have a few favorites. I think there are a few, and I'm sure more, but I can speak to the quality of several uh, young people working in government that I think are amazing leaders, um, care deeply about this city. Um, like Robin Abad is one that got pulled from planning to work in the mayor's office who worked on the um, pop-up restaurants sort of pandemic response of City Hall. Like I just think is an incredible human. He also... He's one of the founders of the San Francisco Urban Film Festival, great thinker, doer, strategist. I met him on the Eastern Neighborhoods Commission. Um, in New York, New York has an organized fellowship program for young people. Um, college students get to, are hired by the mayor's office, get deployed to agencies over the summer, and are embedded on our teams. Um, it's a really special experience. Um, like just because it's fun. You know, we took them to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge, to Rikers Island, to power plants, to Be Bellevue. Like we gave them a real tour and appreciation 
of what the infrastructure of the city looked like and really importantly, the people who maintained those institutions. So we climbed with iron workers to the Brooklyn Bridge. We worked with the mental health specialists at Bellevue, which is a big hospital in lower Manhattan. We worked with the um, folks at Rikers Island who did intake of folks and interviewed them. I mean, to me, it's a... Um, Coro does good work like this here, which is giving people a view into how does a city work and eyes on what opportunities would look like in that work if civic life calls to young people, um, which I just think is really, as a person who likes civic life very much, I think it's, and who also uh, overshare, I didn't have a lot of people guiding my professional experience. I was like, the reason it's so varied is it was a choose your own adventure. It was wayfinding by yourself, trying to figure out what you like to do, what you're good at, who you like to do it with, how much you want to sit at a desk versus be out in the world. Um, and so for me, being able to take young people around who might not know their path yet to share with them. Um, all of the different ways you could be a city employee, if you will. Like, I think that's really cool. Um, nerdy cool, but cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I'm also thinking about situations like, I don't know, making this up, but the 911 dispatcher who has an idea about better routes for sanitation pickup or something, right? Yeah. What's Is there any sort of, was there a process like that in New York where that person could push an idea up the hill or up the flagpole? And is there anything like that here? I don't know. Uh, sort of. I mean, the mayor, um, there's a requirement of the mayor of New York that was put on him by the equivalent of the Board of Supervisors to issue, I want to say it's like the third month of the year and the nine month, ninth month of the year. It's like a strange process, but it aligns to the budgeting cycle and being able to have information in time to make budget choices called the MMR, which is the Mayor's Management Report. And the requirement does not specify actually what needs to be in the report, just that there be one. And so one of the interesting changeovers between Giuliani and Bloomberg was Bloomberg decided he wanted to look at totally different things um, and fewer things. So less like a balance sheet, more like what is the time to fix a pothole? How long is somebody on a 311 call? Like kind of more customer service-y things. And so in that way, he designed a system where he was basically getting the input for quick wins, um, but it wasn't in, at the individual level. It was, I would suspect, at the agency head level. Um, I haven't seen anything like that here. Um, St. Paul, I think, did a artist in residence program. This is one of my favorites. Um, where they had an artist in residence and they didn't know what they wanted to do with them, which is a common thing in artist in residence things. Um, and that person started going to community meetings, okay? So they're going to community meetings, they're seeing who shows up in rooms like this, people who have time, people who are interested, and they realized that there was a big barrier for, to get there. And so their um, sort of proposal, and that the city accepted this and now does this, was to basically have a bookmobile for community meetings so that community meetings go to communities, crazy. What I a know. Concept. What a concept. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I would just say I'm a big advocate for the willingness to experiment and listen to people about what they need. That's Sarah Fenske-Bahat talking with SF Next Project Director Jonathan Krim. When we come back, they'll talk about how different municipalities partner with the private sector. 
At the SF Next Solutions Conference in October, there was a lot of focus on specific problems. But there was also room for more expansive thinking. SF Next Project Director Jonathan Krim talked with Sarah Fenske-Bahat, a former New York City government staffer and currently the interim director of Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, about developing new ideas. Another thing that you and I talked about prior to this was uh, the difference in the relationship between the mayor's office in New York and working with the private sector um, relative to other places, particularly here. Tell us a little bit about what that looked like there. I now appreciate this differently than I did when I lived there. Um, But I would say it feels to me like New York City leadership circles run together versus separately, meaning... um, People show up for one another, whether they're in government, the private sector, philanthropy sector, nonprofit sector. There is like a regular cadence of folks coming together to talk about the biggest issues going on in town. So as a for example, um, Cranes Magazine, which is, I don't think we have one here that I know of. So you guys are the Cranes in this example. This room might be the Cranes. Cranes is a local news magazine about business and sort of what's going on in the city. They have a quarterly breakfast. At that quarterly breakfast, there are like a thousand people coming to listen to whatever their editors have decided is the thing that they want everybody to know about. And so we presented the mayor's plan for lower Manhattan, right? Meaning everybody is in the room. Everybody's hearing it. Everybody gets a chance to ask questions, go deeper, and like really fundamentally importantly, meet each other. Um, One of my observations here is that we have fewer ways to do that and we do so less regularly and we do it less together. Um, So I get excited about some of the things that we've talked about, about um, maybe blurring the lines of the silos that a lot of us have sat in for a long time. How would we start to do that? could host a Crane's Breakfast. You're doing it now. Um. (laughs) It was not meant to be a leading question like that. Um, But thank you. But no, I mean, I I think this is great, but you're talking about something that's much more sort of institutionalized in a way, right? And at least, I mean, Crane's may have been the facilitator, but these groups have sort of... Well, they reinforce in other ways. together, right, in some way. And... That's the part that feels like doesn't exist here. Yeah. Um, I think we have to turn out for each other. I mean, I really, really, I took my role. I was sitting in academia comfortably, and I took this role um, almost a year ago. And there's, like, lots of things we could talk about about that if you want to see me after. But um, my big observation is that um, there's lots of different rooms of people meeting to talk about these things. I think we would all benefit from coming together a lot more across sectors, across communities, and really um, choosing to look forward, right? Choosing to think about what we all have in common more than what we have, what is different about us, and choosing to decide um, how we want to show up together for this community. You know, I have kids in this community. Like, I have, my dad lives in this community. Like, I have my dad, like, in my backyard in one of these units, actually. Um, and so, to me, if we care enough about this city, we show up. And we show up not only in our self-interest, we show up in the interest of the community. 
do we... How do we do it? Yeah. We just come together. I mean, so I think about third spaces. Uh, YBCA I consider to be a third space, a space where you run into people different than you, where you don't have to do anything, right? Um, one of, I've been uh, on the side of reason and economics, and I've now on the side of culture, which is, I think, more heart work, more human work. I like them both together very much. I think they're both really, really important. I don't think I could pick a favorite. However... I do think that in moments where we feel fractured and polarized, it is more important that we show up in rooms. I don't care what happens in the rooms, actually. I think it's actually better if we don't try to make those arrangements, pre-arrangements sometimes, but like just show up in rooms where people are different from you and see what happens. It's the way that I think about um, YBCA now that we're starting to reopen. It's the way I think about uh, basketball games. It's the way I think about Muni, the parks. Um, if you're hiding away, you're missing the beauty of this city. Um, are, we, are we more polarized than New York was when you were there? Different. No, uh, maybe. New York, <laughs> I mean, so New York post 9-11, uh, this might sound really strange, but it was a very special place. Um, in terms of People everyone's love for the city. And coming together. And coming yeah. together. Yeah. Um, this last, moment uh, feels very similar. Well, it lasted long enough for the blackout, which happened the next summer, actually, which was a reinforcing of that feeling again, which was really nice. Uh, I think it's not there now. So you're not saying we need more disasters, though, right? No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> but, but I think this moment to me does feel similar in that it's a soul-searching moment. And I think a lot of us want better. And I think a lot of us are willing to put in the effort. Um, and so that's where I find my optimism about it. And do we, we have so many layers here. Yes. <laughs> and you talked about your, your love for democracy and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. That's fine. Do we have too much? Too many layers? Too many, too much democracy. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know that we're using it right. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know if it's too much. Okay. Fair enough. Well, that might be a good place to stop and see if folks have questions. Hi, uh, Deanne Work. Uh, I noticed uh, a common theme in what you were saying about um, opportunities after the pandemic and after what happened in New York. I'm wondering if you can talk about, is there something that Advance SF could learn from the revitalization of Lower Manhattan after 9-11? based on your experience, and how do, we, how do we get a vibrant, mixed community in our downtown? For sure. Um, I was actually very relieved to run into a New York colleague of mine in the first meeting, because I had like someone else who saw it and knew. Um, I'm waiting for my working group assignment, and we'll, I would happily report back. But um, I think the way that they're looking at it makes sense. It's being run by, um, I think that... I think it's public, but I think it's being run by um, OEWD, which is run by Kate Sophus, um, and uh, Larry Bear, who's the president of the Giants, I think is his title. Um, and to me, it's a good public-private effort that has organized its work thoughtfully on the themes that I, I would say are consistent with the way we looked at it. Um, it's a little bit more dispersed, like they're holding less at City Hall and including more people at this point in the process, which makes me wonder, um, 
how easy it will be to transact on whatever recommendations are made. That's the part that I think gets a little tricky. Uh, there's a question here, but I want to just jump in with a follow-up on this for a second. Um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic here that uh, the primary economic engine is, is an industry that is essentially global and not sort of rooted particularly. Totally. Right? And how do we deal with that? So what the way I, would I was actually thinking about this after we last spoke. I think that New York is, at the time, was running as an inside-out uh, strategy from government out. I actually think San Francisco runs more from an outside-in. Um, and I don't know which is better. I think the question is, where do you want to place yourself in either to be effective for like building the community that you want? Um, I don't know that that answers your question. No, it's okay. I okay. Mean, it's a start. You, sir. Name Thank you. Question, yes. Uh, my name is Jeremy Frank. My question is essentially between New York and San Francisco, kind of to that point of San Francisco's primary industry is on a city timeline scale, fairly new. And I don't know if you've seen more or less with New York having more of a coherent vision of what it wants to be because it's had an idea of where it wants to be for a while, as opposed to, I think, a lot of folks within San Francisco who maybe grew up before tech and then moved here during that time frame have a vision that is very different from one another in terms of some folks want a city that is the same number of housing units. They want it, people to leave, keep it the way it used to be people-wise. And then some people who say, I want to build this up, make it so that it accommodate everybody here, and that should be my vision of the city. And having one city government can't satisfy both of those, and it makes it hard to have a vision that folks won't just <laughs> argue over regardless. Uh, so there's two things I want to offer. Um, let's see. The first is... Uh, we've spoken a little bit about this um, sort of behind the curtain. Uh, visiting the Museum of the City of New York was an excellent sort of experience for me because I realized that New York has like a very clear identity, right? And um, they have an exhibit that talks about like the four themes that drive New York and it's diversity, money, density, and mobility, I think there's an interesting question we could ask ourselves about what are the themes, and I, and I think those apply to all the communities of New York in very different ways, but are relatable themes that people can find themselves in. I would offer that I think we should do some soul searching on what those themes are that are relatable across generations, across communities here. Because I think the answers that we're looking for reside in those questions, personally. Um, Let's see, there was something, in terms of percentage of industry, uh, there's a great quote about uh, the composition of New York that the book I recently read about Lincoln Center. And it, talk, it, it was quoting somebody else who I can't recall, so sorry. <laughs> but it talked about like a third of New Yorkers are born there, born and bred, a third um, end up there kind of by accident, and a third come there because they want to tap into the energy of the place. And that that last third is the third that um, ends up running the city. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but I, I, your comment sort of calls it for me. Um, I'm not sure how divided we are based on how long we've lived here or what we do here. I think there are things about this place that are probably interesting across those lines. Um, so I have guesses on those, but I have no final answers, right? Like I think the topography of the place, I think um, its sense of refuge to communities over time, I think its sense of wanting to be weird, 
Um, I think there is a lot that we have in common that we could sort of tease out over time. Um, I don't think New York had an idea of like what industries it wanted to support to architect that in advance. Um, and I think having a vision and a sense of yourself is what can allow lots of different people to buy into it. So I think our challenge is the vision piece more than the people piece is what I would offer. If somebody here. Hi, I'm Barbara. I love the 20-minute city concept that you talked about. And sort of playing off the last question, can you envision our city, given a concentrated downtown area, being a 20-minute city? Maybe more than one downtown area, yes. Okay. It might not just be one. Right, but we would have to, you're saying we would have to change, we, right now, as we're constructed, that's what we have. So how do we get there to be a 20-minute city? I would be uh, amateur houring the answer to that question, and I fear doing that in this room. However, um, you know, I think there are, I mean, to the last panel, I think there are underutilized parts of the city. And if we think about them in terms of reconnection, I think we would be having a very different conversation. Hi, uh, Dan Freeman. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, attributes of New York that you shared that San Francisco might benefit from adopting, um, but change sometimes is easiest if you leverage your strengths. Are there things that you've seen in San Francisco that make you think, oh, that's something that other places should adopt that might be a benefit for us to know as a strength that you see? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I mean, I loved the public art coming in this morning. I love that I discover new parts of this city all the time. I think the JFK project is excellent. Um, I think there's a lot here that feels, I, I think that one of the themes is maybe willingness to experiment. Um, willingness to experiment and sort of irreverence on how things need to work feels like a core characteristic. I don't have a one word thing for it, but it's that thing that happens here over and over and over again. Um, so I think that is one of the strongest things about this city. Um, and I think in New York, that's called reinvention. I don't know that it's quite the same here, but there is something about it that I think tapping into would be um, beneficial to do. It's, it's really interesting, right? Like I think if people were asked what the sort of defining characteristic of the city is, You'd get answers like diversity, food, the weather. Food's always a good one. Um, but is that something that can, you can hang your city on, essentially? I, I mean, a city depends on its people, right? All the buildings in the world, all the transit in the world, all the parks in the world, it depends on its people, the choices we make together. Um, and so I think... a. The years in education, um, you know, there's this theory about the affirmational work on the walls. Um, and so when you go to your kid's school, if you have kids, or you hang up things in your house that remind you of positive things, that's the affirmational work on the walls, right? It's the stuff that reminds you of what you want to remember, who you are, that moment. Um, and to me, San Francisco is a city with a lot of affirmational work on its walls, I guess is what I would say. We have hey, time I've, for another one. Hi. Uh, this is about how to achieve political change. I appreciate your calling out um, by right zoning, which is on the ballot on Prop D here. Um, so to my mind, that's like one uh, 
way, and a different way is to put people in rooms, people that have time during the workday to go to the rooms and have these neighborhood level dialogues. So like concretely, to what extent? Let's say somebody wanted to make SF Brooklyn, not even Manhattan. What's the quickest way to do it? Would it be to put more people in rooms with creative and incremental solutions? Or would it be to actually have the state take over control of our zoning? Okay. Can I no comment that one? I don't know. <laughs> That's a... Do we have one over here? Hello. Hi, I'm Karen. And thank you so much for um, your wisdom and for sharing that with us. Um, and thank you in particular for telling us a bit more about the High Line. My question is, what can we do in, in um, a creative uh, governmental forum to, as we look at places like the High Line, guard against the perhaps unintended consequences of these kinds of improvements that manifest themselves as gentrification and displacement? It's such a good question. That is the question. Um, I'm not sure. I think that this city is, um, I think, I feel, I don't know how you guys feel, but I'll, I'll just offer. I have a um, husband in technology, a dad who's been HIV positive for 30 years, and a brother who's been homeless for several years too. Uh, so I feel like I'm living, I've lived here for 15 years, and I definitely feel like I am um, enmeshed in the San Francisco experience a few different ways. Um, and, and especially along this dimension of, you didn't say it, but I'm going to call gentrification class, right? Like I think there's a class warfare sort of situation embedded in that word. Uh, is that an okay? Okay. Um, and so I guess... We can have nice things, right? Like, but JFK is a nice thing that's fairly accessible despite the disagreements about it. Safe bike lanes are pretty accessible despite the fact that they're not quite there yet. I think um, Sunday streets is really accessible um, as those things go. And so I would say building on the things that call people together feels like it's uh, less controversial and less open to that kind of criticism. I mean, I actually think Crane Cove Park is a great example of something that, um, and that whole development of the waterfront that's um, opening up a new pathway in this town to see what we might look like if we grow. And not grow bigger, but grow like almost the amount of space we have to offer ourselves um, in terms of public areas. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a hard one. We have time for one more. Thank you, Marilyn Bensell. I'm very interested in your observations about the association of Bay Area governments, ABEG, in addressing any of these issues. Um, I've never worked with them, so I only have an outsider's perspective. I think a regional approach is critical, is what I would say. Um, I don't know that I have a judgment about the different players in the regional approach. All right, on that note, please thank Sarah. She's been terrific. That was Sarah Fenske-Bahat, Interim Director of the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, in conversation with SF Next Project Director Jonathan Krim at the SF Next Solutions Conference. 
Find the complete panel audio, coverage of the event, and our stories at sfchronicle.com sfnext. We also want to check out your ideas. Do you have a solution you want this city to pursue? Do you know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. And Fixing Our City is off next week. Enjoy the holidays. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.